Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. The second one of Series 3, I'm calling it because there was a gap of some months before I did one last week and now here I am again this week as I will be every week in this series as we try and explore the new political landscape. I have to confess that along with many others I thought after the December election that the landscape would have at least a sense of surface stability. I knew beneath the surface there would still be kind of big tidal waves reshaping the British economy and politics but I didn't think it would be close to the surface because we were so used to having a hung parliament with cliff-edge votes, which the government often lost. And those kind of vote dramas are hard to recreate in any other way in politics. They are inevitably engaging and unpredictable and have huge impact in the immediate aftermath. And that wasn't going to happen, and indeed isn't going to happen. This is a government who will win most, if not all, of its votes in the House of Commons for years to come. And yet the landscape still feels wild, in some ways wilder than before December. When a political landscape moves and changes, it inevitably has a kind of feel of seismic stormy weather. And that's what is happening at the moment, partly because of the virus with all the unpredictable implications of this global epidemic but also because, more parochially, this budget this week, this budget from this, in effect, new government, quite clever that I say in effect new government on their behalf, because they give the impression that is an entirely new government elected in December, and not the fourth term of a tired governing party. And the budget was extraordinary for so many ways. After the 2010 election and indeed before the 2010 election. The then Conservative leader, David Cameron, uh, used to give the impression that he was, to use his language, a modernising centrist Conservative. And it was an act that fooled many in the media. The Guardian at times cheered him on. So did The Independent, even less critically. Parts of the BBC referred as if it was an objective fact to Cameron and George Osborne as centrists and modernisers, when actually what they were doing was pursuing an economic policy to the right of Margaret Thatcher, a response to the financial crash in 2008 that was deeply ideological. And the real-term spending cuts were greater than anything Thatcher contemplated in the 1980s. Now, you can justify them, and there was a case for them. It's not a case I happen to share. Um, But you can't argue that this was centre-ground politics. I remember the editor of the then editor of Newsnight, Ian Katz, tweeting away, the big question for Labour is whether they can join Cameron and Osborne on the centre ground and so on. It wasn't. They weren't. That's not where they were. Uh, Nor were they modernisers. The party that they inherited was torn apart over Europe more than anything else. Not so much social liberalism, although that was an issue that Cameron and Osborne did challenge them over. But in terms of economic policy and Europe, 
Cameron and Osborne tended to feed the orthodoxies and assumptions that had defined the Tory party since 1979. This budget marks a real and significant leap. It was a budget that reflected much more the vision of those in number 10 than the Treasury. Indeed, I can imagine senior Treasury officials not liking this budget at all. But that can be a good sign. The Treasury often gets things badly wrong. But I often note that uh, the former Permanent Secretary at the Treasury, Sir Nick McPherson, lovely guy and very interesting and smart, and got on with all the chancellors he worked with. He's always tweeting sound money, sound money. Whenever there's a spending proposition, he's against it, and he puts the hashtag sound money, and that's the view from within the Treasury. It might be the instinct of the new Chancellor Sunak, I'm told it is, but that's not the principle that underlied this budget by any means. And it was fascinating to hear a Conservative Chancellor say early on in the budget speech that precisely because of the increased investment, there would be higher growth levels and higher productivity. This is precisely the opposite argument that George Osborne deployed for all those years, where he said it was necessary to have spending cuts in order to generate economic growth and productivity. Now, Rishi Sunak argues that it's because Osborne took all those tough decisions that he now has the freedom to do the things that he's doing. Now, that is an argument, but it's a very shallow one. Osborne, too, could have borrowed. Borrowing was cheap from about 2009 onwards. Borrow to invest. Indeed, Osborne, in his first budget in 2010, said that the big mistake of the previous Tory government in the early 1990s during a recession was not to borrow for capital spending projects. And then I looked at the small blueprint of his budget, and he wasn't doing so either. He was cutting capital spending, a move that uh, Nick Clegg later admitted was a mistake, one of many mistakes that Clegg happily combined with the Conservatives to bring about at the time. But there's none of that here. There is a Keynesian argument at the heart of that budget, expressed openly by the new Chancellor, that spending and investment can lead to higher economic growth and higher productivity. So he was the first Conservative Chancellor since 1945 to put such an overt case for active government. And it was accompanied by big levels of uh, spending, both for capital projects and current spending, which was expected to be tight. Now, arguably, it's still too tight, given what's happened over the last 10, 11 years. Council's on their knees, and they'll be one of the agents having to respond to this nightmarish virus epidemic. But it is a relaxation, nonetheless, of current spending and big plans for infrastructure spending. Sunak himself presented it with a flourish, a self-confident, stylish performance. But in a way, that flourish, while necessary, because it was such a leap 
from the Conservatives' recent past was at odds with the dark context of this budget. I was thinking if Brown had delivered it, by the way, I don't think he would have been so extravagant with spending. Gordon Brown, certainly in the context of the New Labour era, where they were terrified of appearing overtly to put the case for public spending in the way that uh, Rishi Sunak did today. But what Sunak said was a vindication, really, of some of the things that Labour have been saying for quite some time in terms of the virtues of spending and borrowing when borrowing is at such a low level. And it's so interesting that, you know, you look back at that sort of period where George Osborne quite brilliantly framed the entire economic debate around the fact that the entire global crash really had been caused by the alleged profligacy of the previous Labour government. And the only test of Ed Miliband when he was leader was the degree to which he would move in the same direction as Osborne and focus on the deficit. And um, when Miliband famously, in one of his unscripted or actually learnt off by heart speeches at a party conference, forgot to mention the deficit, he was slaughtered. And all the BBC interviews with shadow cabinet people so what will you cut what will you cut what will you cut and now you have a chancellor putting an entirely different case as if the recent past was really ancient history and yet that context is gloomy the virus is going to have hugely disruptive consequences for the economy for who knows how long hopefully a short time. And I think I was wrong last week when I suggested that there wouldn't be political consequences in terms of the virus. The government has taken a view to be more laid back than some other governments. My heart sunk when I heard that uh, the nudge unit, uh, which was set up in the Cameron era, was involved in the calculations as to the timing of um, measures aimed at mitigating the virus. I've always been sceptical about this nudge unit. It's very interesting if you compare, say, the consequences of a government act which compelled people to behave differently, the smoking ban introduced by the last Labour government, or to give him great credit, Osborne's sugar tax. Both changed behaviour through direct measures. None of this nudge business, especially the smoking ban. You could argue that a sugar tax is a nudge using a price rise in effect or motivating companies to find alternative ways of producing the sugary drinks of that they were doing before. But I mean, they were very direct measures. The sort of nudge idea was, you know, Oh, I know. I mean, the equivalent of the smoking ban for the nudge concept would be, oh, yeah, why just what we want to do is make smoking unfashionable in pubs so people decide not to smoke. Well, that might have had an impact in about 100 years. But the smoking ban, without costing any money, will have saved the NHS a ton of money and saved, in effect, many 
lives. So anyway, I'm very sceptical of this nudging business. If governments act, they can make a difference. But nudging and hinting and things like that, you know, it's just, um, it's an excuse for not acting when you ideologically, again, don't really believe in active government, but want the ends of active government. So the nudge unit seem to be saying that oh, you've got to avoid draconian measures for as long as possible because if when you need them, they've already been in place, people won't adhere to them because they'll be fed up and you've got to analyse people's behaviour as to when to do these things. Well, actually, the evidence suggests pretty draconian measures are necessary, they do work and they can then lead to a reduction in the impact of the virus fairly speedily. That seems to have been what has happened in China, South Korea, and we're seeing now in Italy a hugely drastic set of measures to try and contain this virus. And as some have said, who needs a crystal ball? Italy was in the position the UK is in now, but that was two weeks ago. Now, there are theories going around that Italy didn't catch the or was aware of the impact of the virus early enough, but that might also be the case in the UK. There are slightly patronising reports about the quality of the health service in Italy. I'm told it's pretty good. And the NHS here has been underfunded for a long time. There are advantages of having a coordinated service, but it has been quite fragmented in recent years as well as underfunded. So we'll see how well they do. The number of German beds far, far greater, for example. It has been an under-resourced service for the last 10 years. So we'll see. But if it emerges that they were a bit lax in the earlier phases of this virus, that will obviously become a political issue and will make the upbeat delivery of the budget seem discordant if the crisis becomes overwhelming. I've absolutely no idea whether that will happen, but clearly it might. And the other thing, of course, is Brexit. Under the radar of the, the virus frenzy, the government seems to be opting again and again to withdraw from all cooperation with the European Union if it involves any connection whatsoever with the European Court of Justice or uh, regulatory frameworks with Europe or cooperation of a formalised sort and any formalised cooperation involves some kind of legal framework, they're out. Whatever the costs and bureaucracy to business or in terms of impact on security or, or whatever. And the trade talks, the two sides are as far apart as ever. And yet the time is slipping away and slipped in the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibilities analysis of the budget, are forecasts of substantial loss of growth as a result of the Brexit policies being pursued by this government. So there was, it's again, you know, like so much of politics, quite cinematic in a way. You could have a split screen of the very upbeat Chancellor in his debut performance, and it was a compelling performance with the virus spreading or companies struggling with Brexit propositions that have still not been fully realised or confirmed. 
We're living in really, really weird times. And for the new Labour leader, well, actually it's, pr- it's too late, but if I were Labour leader at the point of this budget, I know exactly what I would do, and that is support it. One of the smartest things an opposition can sometimes do to unnerve a government is to back it. Tony Blair was weakened when David Cameron cleverly supported some of his policies instead of uh, opposing them, because it makes your own side think, well, hold on a second. If the other lot are enthusiastic about what we're doing, is this really the right thing to do? William Hague, when he was leader of the Tory party in 1997, missed a trick when Tony Blair and Gordon Brown really did stick to the Tory tax and spend plans that they inherited, plans which the outgoing Chancellor Ken Clark has said many times since they had no intention of keeping to themselves. Well, they did, and they stuck to really tough tax and spending plans. And Haig ripped into them and accused the government of being, to quote him, profligate and reckless in their spending plans for the economy. And what he should have done is said, well, thank you very much for continuing to, uh, after 18 years we've been in power, you're continuing to implement our policies. We will back you. We will disagree with some of the other things you're doing. If there are stealthy taxes, we'll make clear we oppose them. But the basis of your tax and spend strategy is our policy and we support you. And that would have thrown, I think, the early new Labour phase into a degree of introspective tension that was wholly avoided and said Hay walked into a trap in dis- <laughs> when he described those spending plans as reckless. It meant he couldn't really offer any himself of any significance. And if uh, Labour were to back this budget, Tory MPs would see the likes of Jeremy Corbyn and Joel MacDonald voting into the division lobby with them. And that would unnerve some of them, because although Tory MPs cheered and Sunak used the motif that is going to define this government or this government's pitch, we're getting things done again and again and how they cheered every time he said it the echo of let's get brexit done even though they haven't got it done and by the way the test of all these budget measures will be in the delivery but as they cheered i detected anxiety amongst some of them expressed by some of them afterwards in the debate on the budget that this is such a leap away from the assumptions of Thatcherism that had shaped the Thatcher era and then the Cameron and Osborne era put basically a leap to the left in terms of economic policy, that they were a little uneasy, some of them. And that unease would have been deeply reinforced if uh, if Labour had backed it and said, look, you know, when you pursue left-of-centre policies to invest and argue that that investment will boost economic growth and productivity, you are on left-of-centre terrain and we will back you. When you pursue a hard Brexit that threatens the economy, we will oppose you, and so on. Anyway, that's the way they should do it. I bet they don't. In interim periods, Labour have a lot of them because they tend to lose elections. In interim periods, while they await a new leader, quite often seeds are sown for future problems. And that certainly happened before Corbyn was elected in 2015, when in the interim period during the leadership contest, they tamely 
supported or abstained at least on welfare cuts and backed the referendum on Brexit, having bravely opposed it at the election. So the Labour leadership thing is in a vacuum, and in that vacuum, a government with a big majority is even less constrained than normal. And in that rare freedom and might, this government has dared to do something unusual. It is a genuine leap with the past and therefore can claim to be modernising that appalling term, imprecise term. This is a leap from the past, which I suppose is kind of modernising. And in doing so, they've set their course. There is no going back now for Johnson, Cummings, and to some extent Sunak. I'm told he's a fiscal conservative, but he didn't put the case for fiscal conservatism in the budget. So in a way, it's as significant as the 1979 budget delivered by Geoffrey Howe, which began the course that became known later as Thatcherism. This is a counter to that in a way, but as significant. So the times remain wild. I'm going to be at the Glasgow Book Festival on Saturday. It's called I Write 2020. And at the Theatre on the Lake in the Lake District on Sunday, talking about my book on modern prime ministers and the lessons of leadership. So if any of you are in that area and not self-isolating, I hope you can come along. The next live show, I think, is at King's Place on April the 27th. There weren't many tickets left, but who knows whether anyone will be allowed to gather anywhere by then. Anyway, look, uh, as I said last week, at least you can do a podcast safely. Touch wood. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time. Bye.